Well, greetings again. Thank you for being here uh, with us this morning. We are looking this morning at a passage from Luke chapter 1. But just so you recall, we are looking at various pictures in the Bible that explain to us what it's like to live in the church body, uh, life in the body. What does that look like? And here we have a picture that tells us a little bit about what it looks like to be followers of the king and therefore members of the royal family. So our passage is Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 32, very short passage. And little theologians, I'd like for you to simply draw for me a very large chair, a very special chair, one that's decorated uh, unlike any other chair, uh, one that's higher than any other chair, one that is uh, made of uh, more precious uh, material than any other chair. Of course, I'm asking you to draw a picture of a throne. We'll talk about that throne near the end of the sermon this morning. Again, welcome to Covenant Presbyterian Church. Would you join me in prayer before we look at this passage? Our Father, we thank you that you speak to us. Now, would you help me as your minister to explain not my word, but your word, that King Jesus would shine brightly from this pulpit this morning. Again, thank you, Father, for bringing us to this place together. In the name of Jesus, amen. Look in the passage, Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is the word of our Lord. Well, I want to acknowledge that the word king actually doesn't show up in this passage, but this passage is about the king. It's about Jesus. Now, to us as uh, Americans, and most all of us are Americans, we uh, just have no idea what it's like to live under a king. The very idea of a king is a foreign concept to us. In fact, it's the kind of concept that really is reserved for our understanding of British television, isn't it? Uh, The things that we know about the king, the things that we should know about the king, ought to make us uh, a little bit more uh, intelligent viewers of British TV, or maybe uh, more intelligent viewers of things that happen in England with regards to the royal family. I don't know if you're like this, but there have been times where I have uh, felt uh, very good about myself in a crowd when I have known uh, which king is reigning during uh, this particular episode of British TV or uh, what is actually uh, happening in England with regards to the behavior or actions of this particular royal. Uh, I've boasted about that. But see, you see, that's, that's really the way we understand uh, kings in America. It's uh, almost something that's more cinematic than actually real. Now, we don't know what it's like to have a king. And this is a bit of a problem when we run into passages in Scripture that uh, tell us very clearly like this one, that Jesus, he's our king. Now, I've just said all of that, that it's hard for us to uh, have more than a passing uh, understanding of what it's like to have a king. But at the very end of the sermon, I'm actually going to give you a very clear way of, of how you do know what it's like to have a king. 
There is one way, even in a country like America, where we actually understand a whole lot about how a king works, and I'll tell you that at the end of the sermon. But what this passage is telling us is that in the gospel, God draws us into a royal family in which by his grace we extend the reign of his son. This is what it means to be a believer. We're drawn into a royal family that by God's grace we might extend the reign of another, the reign of Jesus. And I want to say three things. I want to say that these uh, two verses uh, tell us uh, something about uh, the message of God, and that is that the message is no ordinary message. And what this message tells us is that our king is no ordinary king. And then finally, at the end of the sermon, I want us to uh, understand ourselves as a uh, body, as a collection of people, but not any ordinary collection of people. So no ordinary message, no ordinary king, and no ordinary people. Well, the message itself, we've not read this context, but uh, you know, most of you, what this comes from. Uh, These words that we have looked at are actually the words from the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel is one of only two angels in the Bible that is actually named, but what we've read are the words of an angel. And this angel has uh, spoken to Mary, but prior to this, about six months prior to this, this angel uh, spoke to uh, Zechariah. Zechariah and Elizabeth are the parents of John the Baptist. And so this angel, uh, in speaking to Zechariah, says earlier in the chapter, I stand in the presence of God. And in the beginning of the passage we've looked at this morning, this angel uh, Gabriel says, I am sent from God. This is an angel with the authority of God. And then the message of the angel is the message of the gospel. If you look at uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 19, Gabriel actually says to Zechariah that I have come to speak the good news. And so what that means is that this is, uh, to be sure, an angel, but this is an angel who is a preacher. Do we think that about uh, Gabriel? This is a very familiar passage. Did you know that Gabriel was a, was a preacher of the good news, a gospel proclaimer? And so he's preaching a sermon, as it were, even to Mary. And he says to Mary in verse 28, he says, Greetings, a favored one, the Lord is with you. And he says, Greetings, and that's based upon the Greek word for grace. And he says, O favored one, and that too is based upon the Greek word for grace. And then he says, The Lord is with you. And, and while the word Emmanuel isn't there, uh, God with us, It really uh, hearkens to a wonderful message of grace, grace, Emmanuel, grace. Well, Gabriel is, after all, a preacher of the gospel. But after preaching the gospel to Mary, in verse 29, uh, we read that Mary is greatly troubled. That she has some kind of internal dialogue in her mind. There's something about that greetings. Again, that greeting is grace, grace, Emmanuel, grace, grace, Lord is with you. And there's something about that grace that actually causes Mary to fear. Well, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you're a recipient of God's grace. Was there ever a time where God's grace was fearful to you? And it may be that those of you who are converted as adults, you remember when God's grace was something that was fearful. I remember that because I was very much prepared to work for my own salvation, whatever that salvation might look like. But Christianity is different, isn't it? 
Christianity says that you actually cannot work for your salvation. You are saved because God loves you, and he loves you because he loves you, not because of anything that you've done. Now think about that for a moment. Is that fearful at all? Well, there is something very safe about working for my salvation. I know where I stand. I do something good, and I feel good about myself, and I feel others ought to feel good about me as well. But that's not Christianity. And Mary hears this message of grace, and then Mary is greatly troubled. And the angel then in verse 30 says, do not be afraid. That's very interesting. If the angel Gabriel can sense that Mary is afraid, preaching grace to her, and then uh, when he wants to allay her fears, uh, he could say, uh, Mary, don't be afraid. I am, after all, Gabriel. I'm from God. And the message that I bring is a message of authority. But Gabriel doesn't do that. When he says, do not be afraid to Mary, he actually preaches yet another message of grace. You have found favor with God. And there again, in that word favor, is the word for grace. Gabriel is almost uh, like a man who only has one message to proclaim, and that's the message of grace. And when Mary is afraid, he actually preaches grace to her again. She's afraid about God's grace, and it's God's grace that actually sets aside that fear. That is an interesting paradox, isn't it, about the Christian faith? You see, when we think about the work of the gospel, we think the, the work of the gospel in my life uh, uh, actually uh, killed my unbelief. The work of the gospel is the gospel that has, has actually saved me. We think about the work of the gospel as pushing back my doubts, living life as a Christian uh, a decade, two decades, three decades. The gospel still has a role in my life because the gospel actually reminds me of who I am and pushes back my doubt. Oftentimes, we understand the work of the gospel as something that's primarily intellectual. That I preach the gospel to myself, I hear the gospel, and I understand better things about myself. But that's not what's happening to Mary. Mary's afraid. She's fearful. And rather than having a merely intellectual understanding of the work of the gospel, the gospel not only kills unbelief and removes doubt, but the gospel actually removes our fear. The gospel is about our safety as people. We need to understand that that's what's happening to Mary. The gospel is making her comfortable as a Christian, telling her who she is, but pushing back her fear. And then Gabriel goes on and he explains the gospel, but he doesn't explain the gospel uh, as uh, Jesus being a priest, his work upon the cross, and he doesn't explain the gospel as Jesus being a prophet, the one who preaches the Bible, he actually describes Jesus as the king. To Gabriel, grace is the king. That which removes all of our fears is the king. God favors us by giving us a king. You see, it's no ordinary message, the message of grace preached by a Christian. And so it's also no ordinary king And again, Gabriel doesn't use the word king in the next few verses. In fact, he doesn't use the word king at all as he speaks to Mary, but he uses the image of a throne, and he uses the word reign, and he uses the word kingdom. And all three of those show in these two verses, which is why I've narrowed the passage here. 
Because it's no ordinary king, this Jesus, this uh, king of grace. And Gabriel tells us three things that make this king uh, not ordinary. First of all, he is God's own king. Jesus is God's own king. God calls him king. God is the one who, uh, who uh, uh, makes this man king. And in fact, uh, we know that this is the son of the Most High. Now, these very words God is going to state publicly a couple of times. He's going to do so at the baptism of Jesus. This is my son. And he's going to do so at the transfiguration of Jesus. Now, this is my son. But actually, in the ministry of Jesus, demons will also uh, say the same thing, uh, that this, this Jesus, he is the son of the Most High. That God has actually called this one the king. Now, if we know our Old Testaments, we know that there was a time in uh, history when the elders of Israel came to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and they beg him, they beg him for king. And what they really want is they want a king who's like the nations. In many ways, they're asking for an ordinary king, a king a lot like those people over there. And Samuel, of course, is frustrated with the people. And God tells him uh, that uh, his kind of king is actually a different kind of king from the nations. Deuteronomy chapter 17, God says uh, his king is someone who is humble, someone who's perfectly righteous and holy. And Samuel, he knows this. You want a king like the nations. Well, God's king is a different kind of king. And then over the story of redemption, we see that David uh, becomes king, and uh, David actually is uh, the best king. And we can look at David, and we can praise David for being such a great king. There's no king like David after him. And yet, if you were to ask David, which, by the way, if you're a believer, you can do this. You will be able to do this. If you were to ask David, well, what kind of king were you, David? You were the greatest king. You, David will allow you to praise him for probably a half of a second. Because in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David understood something about his own reign. David says uh, that he is the kind of king that prepares uh, people for God's own king. Because God says to him in 2 Samuel 7, I will establish my own king, my own kingdom, and I will establish his throne. David actually understood that there was a greater king coming after him. He actually understood that his reign really serves to do one thing, to show the reign of God's own king. And so we find in our passage here, verse 32, God gives Jesus the throne of David. This is the king that even David anticipated. He's no ordinary king. He is God's own king. But he's also no ordinary king for another reason. He's God's king, but he's no ordinary king because he has a special people. Look what verse 33 says. He will reign over the house of Jacob. Now, I believe this is actually a statement about the church. Jacob is the one who was renamed Israel in Genesis 32. And so Jesus, he will reign over the house of Israel. But we're told over and over again in Scripture that we become a member of the house of Israel through faith. And in fact, uh, this is uh, how uh, Abraham uh, became uh, the, uh, the patriarch of the people of God, by believing in God. 
by trusting in him. And this is what it means to actually uh, be the special people of God, is that we actually are rescued at the very cross of Jesus. Uh, He is a king who has done everything for us that we might actually be his own special people, that we might be a part of the house of Jacob. And we become members, these special people, by faith. And so he's no ordinary king because he's God's own king, and he has a special people who have been brought to him in faith. And then finally, he's no ordinary king because of his dominion, there'll never be an end. His kingdom is without end. And this word that is used uh, by Gabriel for kingdom, it doesn't refer to territory, almost like we're uh, looking at a board game. It's not like uh, we're playing risk and Jesus' territory is larger than anyone else's. It's not about territory. It's about dominion. It's about power. It's about influence. You see, uh, this is uh, dominion, the, the dominion of Jesus, uh, which is his very uh, power, and that power will never pass away, so says the prophet Daniel. What it means is that Jesus' dominion uh, is very different than Jesus' special people. To say that Jesus has a kingdom is to say something different from Jesus has a church. The kingdom is the very rule of Jesus, while the church is a society of people. This is how one scholar draws the distinction. So the the kingdom extends beyond the church. The kingdom is in many ways a mystery to the church in the sense that uh, we don't know exactly what the king is doing as he extends his influence and his dominion. But we do know this, that someone may refuse to believe in Jesus and therefore refuse to be a part of the church. And we know people like this. Some are very dear friends of ours. But even though they refuse the king and are therefore not members of the church, that doesn't enable them to escape the kingdom. Do you hear that? If someone can say no to Jesus and no to the church, but they will never escape the dominion of Jesus. His reign will never end, and they must deal with this king. He is, after all, uh, a king who is not ordinary. And so uh, he is not ordinary because he's God's own king. He has a special people that he draws to himself, and of his dominion, there will be no end. Well, what does that mean for me and for you, those of us who profess faith in Jesus? What then kind of people are we? Well, we're no ordinary people. On the surface of it, if if he is a king, it means that being attached to the king, well, that makes us part of his royal family. And we're actually here in this room, royals, and yet we know very little about what it's like to live under a king. But here we are, a royal body. But I want you to hear what the Bible says over and over again about how it is that we are royal. And the best picture of this is in Peter's letter in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says that we, as Christian people, are a chosen race, a royal, and then what does he say? He doesn't say that we're royal subjects. That would make sense, and to be sure, it's true. But what Peter says is he says that we are a royal, a priesthood. And he goes on to say that we are a people who are God's own people who have received God's own mercy. And he states further that we are sojourners, that we are exiles, And so this is what it means then to be a member of the royal family. This is what it means 
to be a church marked by royalty. We are actually a priesthood. You see, a priest in the Old Testament would make, first of all, atonement for his own sins. A priest would acknowledge his own sins, make atonement for those sins, and then he would go to the people. And so he himself being represented before God uh, by the altar, uh, by an offering, uh, atoning for his own sins, he would then go to God's people. And then he would make an atonement for those willing others. He would take uh, their offering and place that offering upon the altar. He'd make atonement for his own sins, and then the priest would make atonement for the sins of others. This is what it means to be a part of the royal family. You are a part of a priesthood in which you are, in a way, making atonement. Well, that's not very helpful at all, is it? Let me try and explain what I think Peter is after. Peter tells us that by being a part of Jesus' family, with him as our king, we are serving as a priesthood in which we do two things. First of all, we live holy lives. We are actually called to live a holy life, a life that is pleasing before God. And Peter, he cites Leviticus 11. He says that we are to be holy as God is holy. And then Peter goes on through this letter to describe what it looks like for us to live holy lives. Now, he says an awful lot about personal holiness. And I want to interrupt myself very quickly to say oftentimes when we think about what it means to be a servant of Jesus, a member of his royal house, and then going out into the world and serving his kingdom purposes, oftentimes we skip right over the calling of Christians to be holy. But if we think about a priest, a priest never would do this. A priest would never forget that personal holiness is important before representing others. He would first deal with his own sins. And listen to what Peter says about what it means to be a part of the royal household of King Jesus. He says that we are to be holy, that we are to long to know God more and more, that we submit ourselves to his holy word, that we live honorably before others, that we're not conformed to our own passions, that we submit to authority that husbands uh, live holy lives before their wives, that wives live holy lives before their husbands, that we practice hospitality, and that we're willing to suffer persecution for King Jesus. This is the application of what it means to be a part of the royal family. You know, we oftentimes think that to be a part of the royal family is nothing more than to uh, drive uh, Land Rovers and travel about in speedboats and private jets. But our king is no ordinary king, is he? And we're no ordinary people. In order to be priests that belong to this royal, we live holy lives before others. In order to see the dominion of Jesus Christ be extended by God's grace, we're first of all called to live holy lives. There's a second thing as well. And Peter goes on and he says, not only are we to live holy lives before God, but we're also to take others to Jesus. First Peter 3, verse 15 is a wonderful evangelism passage. And Peter says that we are always to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in us. And it's interesting that we are called to be prepared to make a defense. And many times we, we won't be given that opportunity to tell people about Jesus. But when we don't have that opportunity to tell people about Jesus, to be a part of his royal family is to live holy lives nonetheless. We take God's law seriously. 
But sometimes, in God's grace, we'll be given an opportunity, and we're called to actually be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope within us. And Peter, furthermore, says that we're to do this with gentleness and with respect. We tell people about Jesus. That's what it means to be a royal. We're to live holy lives, and we're to tell others about Jesus, that his name would be proclaimed. That's what it means to be a priest in the royal family. Now, I want to finish with this. Do you remember how I said we actually do have a pretty easy way to understand what it's like to live under a king, even though we live in America? You know very well what a king is like. You're that king. And I know very well what it's like to uh, live under a king because I myself become my own king. If you are the king, your life will never be holy before God. Your life will be holy before you. You will be the one who sets the parameters for how your life ought to be lived. And you'll do those things that will serve your best interests. If you're the king, if you're the one who climbs upon that throne that you discover, well, life is always going to be about you. And you'll never live a holy life before God. Not really and truly. And similar to this, if you're, if you're uh, the king, you're never going to preach a gospel that is about someone else. The gospel will always somehow be a contrary gospel or a, tr- or a different gospel. That's what Paul calls it. A gospel that actually uh, curves in upon you. And the gospel will always somehow be about works. It'll be a message in which uh, you say to someone, this is what they need to do in order to be accepted by you or in order uh, for you not to be embarrassed by them. The gospel, if you are the king, is always going to serve your own purposes. You see, you and I, we do know what it's like to have a king in our lives. It's us refusing to live a holy life. And it's us refusing to give glory to King Jesus. We know very well what it's like to be a king. And this, however, is how the kingdom of God, the dominion of Jesus Christ, actually goes forth. We think it's by uh, establishing uh, nonprofit organizations. We think that it's by uh, doing things that are very loud and public. Uh, but uh, actually, Peter tells us that uh, Jesus' kingdom uh, dominion is actually extended by us being a royal priesthood in which we live holy before God, that he would be pleased, and in which we tell people about Jesus rather than ourselves. Isn't that beautiful? No ordinary message, and he's no ordinary king, and we are no ordinary people. This is what it means to be royal church family. Let's pray together. Father, we would ask you two things. We ask that you would uh, help us to understand that living holy lives is a way in which the dominion of our king is extended. Help us, Heavenly Father, to have good conduct before Gentiles. Help us to love your will more than our own will. And the second thing we would ask, Father, is that you would help us to understand more of the gospel that we might explain it when given opportunities, with gentleness and with respect. But, Father, teach us more and more about the gospel that we may share the message of the king with others. We thank you this morning for the glory of our King. Amen.